Today's scripture reading is from Revelation 1, verses 1 through 11. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes or beginning on page 883 in our worship Bible. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of his prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will walk on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamon, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, for two years now, we've been reading the whole Bible together, and I've been talking about every book of the Bible as we've gone through. Not exactly every single book, but in 102 or so messages or so, we've talked about just every one of those books, just about, and now we come to the very last book in the whole Bible, the book of Revelation, which, just so you know, there's only one Revelation, so if you want to tell yourself it's not Revelations, don't ever you know, correct someone else, but you might just want to auto-correct yourself. Uh, it's called the Revelation. There's a single revelation. It's the revelation of John, which John was given through Jesus Christ to give to the whole church, and was given to the whole church as a way of helping them to, to be able to stand firm and stand fast in the wake of terrible persecution. As the first century came to a close, and this was very likely the last book written in the New Testament, generally dated to be in the early 
90s AD, as the first century came to a close, the Roman emperor Domitian brought widespread persecution to the church. Now, there had been lots of persecution in many ways and many times. The first main persecution occurred by Nero. Uh, in fact, it was that which probably led to the death of Paul and some of the others uh, there in the, in the 60s or so, uh, in the 50s and the 60s. But it was a, not quite so widespread as ultimately it came in the last portion of the first century as Christians moved all around the area and they were beginning to show an influence and there was this emperor called Domitian who brought widespread persecution to the church. There was the cult of the worship of Caesar, and for the most part, people didn't really care whether you really worship Caesar or not, but Domitian wanted to really make sure they were worshiping him, and so they would want for people to say, Caesar is Lord. Well, a Christian could not say that, because for a Christian, who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. And so they were called to renounce their faith, and many people were beginning to die and were going to die under that first uh, wave of great persecution. Some worse persecution occurred later. And so during the course of this time, many Christians lost their lives for refusing to renounce their faith or to, con or to confess, Caesar is Lord. Some of them were torn to pieces by wild horses. Imagine this. Wild horses we would tie, uh, tie different uh, 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 to their legs and tie uh, or, uh, to the legs and the arms. And the horse would be scared and they'd run off and just tear off limbs. This would happen to people. Sometimes people, this happened, they were even impaled alive on stakes and had pitch put on them. And they were lit like torches and died like that. Some, more mercifully, were thrown to the lions. I mean, this was some of the, gra the great examples. Of, but there was persecution that happened throughout. And, and in the midst of this, it became very difficult for Christians to know how to respond to that. And yet, despite this, the church grew like wildfire during this time. It grew massively. The more you tried to stamp it out, the more it seemed like it continued to grow. In fact, one of the early church historians said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You can't kill this group. Because these people are willing to die for what they believe. And the more that they die, the more people that are drawn to them. And there's tremendous growth that happened at the end of the first century and into the second century of time. Now the question is, what was it that gave to these men and women simple poor, uh, generally speaking, men and women and children? What was it that gave them courage in the midst of such terrible difficult times? What was it that helped them to stand firm? What was it that gave them the opportunity to die so impressively that people said, I want what they have? Because that's exactly what, what was it? Yeah, it was their faith. Yes, that's exactly right. But it was their faith that was built upon, in many ways, the message of this book, the book of the Revelation. It was the book of Revelation which gave to the church, along with the other writings of Scripture, but in particular, this book was written in order to help Christians in modern-day Turkey, which is where the church was. If you, if you ever think about Ephesus and Thyatira and all these places that are listed there, it, at Janice enjoyed reading for you at the end of her reading today, those seven churches, they were all in modern-day Turkey. That's where the strength of the church was. This book was written in order to strengthen those churches, and in fact, it was successful. It was in large part due to the message of this book, the revelation. What was it about this book that gave him courage to face unimaginable persecution? Whatever it was that gave to these Christians courage and hope in the midst of difficult times, don't you think that if it worked for them, it will work for you 
in whatever it is that causes you to be discouraged, causes you to lose hope. Cause maybe some of you today are dealing with difficult issues. Maybe you've gone through someone you love has, gone, has died recently. Or perhaps you yourself are concerned for your own future, your own health. Maybe you're going through very difficult sicknesses or dealing with it. Maybe you're going through a relational problem which feels to you like the world is caving in on you. Or maybe finances are just so bad or, or your work is so bad. Or maybe you're going through such depression and doubt that you're not sure that you can really hang on. If so, the book of Revelation, Revelation was written for you too. It was written for them and helped them to stand in the face of lions. And there's a beautiful story about a lady named Perpetua and her slave, Felicity, who uh, was born in 203 A.D. And you can read it, The Passion of Perpetua and Felicity. It's an ancient, ancient document. Some of it is written in her hand because she was an educated young woman of 22 and, uh, and, and some of it was written by those who knew her. In fact, it was such a popular book uh, talking about their experience, her experience, that people had, to, they had, to, had warnings in the church. Remember, this isn't Scripture. She was an important martyr. In fact, there's a feast day for her on March 7th. And she's the, uh, she is the uh, uh, patron saint in those churches that think of these things uh, for mothers and for pregnant women and, uh, and for other things as well. Perpetua was a 22-year-old young mother, very likely widowed, who had a little baby who would not renounce her faith. A noble woman, a wealthy woman. Her father, she, she had adopted the faith of her mother. Her father was a pagan. He pleaded with her, pleaded with her, just, just say you don't believe. She pointed to a pot over in the corner of the house. She says, what is that? He said, it's a pot. <laughs> what, could you just call it anything you want, she said? No, it's a pot. He said, she said, I am a Christian. I cannot be called by anything else. As a pot cannot be called by something it is not. Neither can I. I'm a Christian. She was imprisoned along with her slave, uh, Felicity. And uh, she was so distraught because her baby was separated from her. She had all the discomfort of a nursing mother unable to nurse her baby. Ultimately, they decided to give to her a better accommodations. And she, had, she kept a journal, and it was that journal which was smuggled out and was part of the early church's uh, ancient letters. And in that journal, she spoke about her joy when ultimately they gave her better accommodations and she could care for her little baby. And Felicity, her slave, uh, a Christian slave as well, she was so worried because she was eight months pregnant, and she was going to have to be executed along with Perpetua. And she was so worried that she would be executed pregnant with a baby. So she prayed and prayed, and sure enough, God blessed her by having her baby early so that the baby itself would survive, and it was then raised by godly Christian women. This is a story, a true story. And so Perpetua and her slave stood in that gladiator's place and gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. Now, this is 100 years after the book of Revelation was written, but that is a true-to-life example of how it is that people were able to find hope in the midst of the worst imaginable circumstances. What was it that gave to them this kind of hope? 
It was this book of Revelation. Now, so we're going to look at this book of Revelation in that context, because that is the context into which it was written. And I want you to we're going to take a look at two little questions about it. I want you to know, first of all, what it was not, what they didn't see in there that gave them hope, and then what it was that they did see. Can you kind of with me there? We look at this book of Revelation, we tend to like it, finding it things that we think will give us hope. That I'm not sure this was really what gave to them hope. But what was it they really did? So what was it not? What was it not? I believe it was not the fact that they had successfully decoded all the symbols and images in this book. That they had it all figured out. That they had a chart there that said this is what's going to happen then. And this is what's going to happen. And it's going to all be just like this. And this is how it's going to work. I don't think they had figured all of that out. In fact, no one ever has really been able to figure that out, at least proving. proving. And it's, it's, it, because it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an apocalyptic book. It's filled with demons and angels and lions and lambs and dragons and seals and bulls and horsemen just filled with cataclysmic catastrophic images it's hard to figure out every detail they didn't apparently figure all that out and neither have we after 2000 years of figuring out this book now i know some of you grew up in churches that are very keen on figuring out all of this means all of that right how many of you can remember okay you know, and, uh, and, you know, it might be true, but it might not. But the point is, if we look at the book simply to get a bunch of codes and, and interpretive things, like that, we're missing the things that really helped those people figure it out. Yeah. See, this is a brand of literature called apocalyptic literature. It was a very popular kind of writing back in those days. It, there were, uh, it really it refers to the unveiling, the, the opening up, the, the seeing behind the veil of what is there. It was a common thing. There's some apocalyptic literature in the Bible, and Daniel has some of it as well, but for the most part, it occurred in various kinds of um, uh, um, Jewish literature that happened between the New Testaments, and it's a kind of unveiling of what's coming. It's dramatic, it's imaginative, and it, it, it speaks in, in, in broad strokes, and it tries to create big images, and it's hard to say exactly. For example, and I didn't have uh, of, uh, uh, Janice read all this for you, but look how Jesus is described. It's on the back side of your message note um, in verse, uh, uh, um, verse 10. Uh, says, I was in, he says, uh, chapter 1, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And it said, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice. You can't see a voice, but he says he saw a voice, and he had already said it sounded like a trumpet. And on turning, I saw seven lampstands, and in the midst of seven lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. This is a picture of Jesus. The hairs, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. So far, so good. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, are we supposed to think that he literally had fire in his eyes? No, it's an image, right? And then it says, his feet were burnished bronze. Now, were they literally burnished bronze? Or is he meaning something about the kind of feet that he had? And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. I mean, Jesus looks pretty strange in this picture, right? 
white hair, golden sash, browns, bronze feet, um, um, uh, the uh, 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 sword coming out of his mouth. You see, it's apocalyptic literature. It's got lots of images, and it means certain kinds of things. Of course, I think the, the sword, uh, the Bible says the Word of God is like a two-edged sword, and Jesus spoke, and it was like a two-edged sword. So we see that connection. Sometimes we can see some of those connections. It's that kind of thing. It's like a lot of modern or impressionistic painting. You, you look at it, and maybe it doesn't look quite like what it's supposed to look like, but it's giving you an impression of something. It's dramatic. It's, it's imaginative. Uh, he's, um, you know, it's like uh, uh, Donna's cousin was over visiting a few weeks ago, and he woke up in the morning, and he said to me, I guess I had the strangest dream last night. He told me about his dream, and he said, and there are all these little baby elephants. I was rescuing baby elephants. They're like this big. <laughs> the image, he didn't know what it meant, and I don't either. But you see, there's a lot in this book that sort of fits like that. And sometimes we can see what it is, but if we were really to say God's going to send a bunch of baby elephants down the road, we'd be thinking, no, you're misunderstanding the kind of thing that it is, right? So we've got to be careful because I doubt whether Perpetua had all of that figured out in her head. Yeah, that's not to say we can't make educated guesses and assumptions about some of these. We can and we should and, and we, uh, we often can. But, but we want to be careful to remember what kind of image we're dealing with. We're dealing with poetry, with apocalyptic literature, with imaginative literature. When I say the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I don't mean I'm literally a sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. I doesn't mean I'm literally a sheep. These are symbols, similes, and metaphors. Also, so it really wasn't that. There was something more going on than just having figured out a practical roadmap like Perpetua said, well, I know that the world's going to go on for 2,000 years, and someday there's going to be a nation called Russia that's going to start up, and there's going to be this over there. No, they didn't know any of all of that, and neither do all of we. Yeah, I have grown up in somewhat of that environment, and like some of you, I've had a reaction against it. In fact, I have a little book in my library with this title, 88 Reasons the Rapture Could Be in 1988. It came to me early in, late in 1987, you see? So I have a feeling that book never got a second edition. <laughs> you know, and... So we want to be careful. There are a variety of interpretations about what all this will mean. And my suggestion is that when we look at various interpretive elements with regard to the book of... I mean, there's some very things we can confidently say, and I'm going to get to those in a moment. Um, and we may, we'll look at this again next week as well. Um, uh, but, there, but about a lot of these things, there, we need to recognize what kind of literature it is. And it's meant more to evoke a confidence and a faith in God that no matter what, God will make everything work out. And that kind of confidence is what it's meant to evoke. That's its goal. That's what it gave to those people, a vision of the future, which gave them courage to live their lives with gusto, even if that meant standing before uh, horses and, you know, gladiators and doing all of that. So we have interpretations, and I would say, suggest you three simple things about that. Number one, hold them, hold them lightly. You're, you're gonna, some of you have various perspectives on what all this means. Hold them lightly. Realize we don't know everything. Hold them lightly. The Bible says we now see through a glass darkly. 
That means you can't see every detail and don't pretend that you can. That doesn't mean you don't have a position. Many of us will come up with certain kinds of positions about certain kinds of things that the Bible is teaching. It's okay to have a position. Nothing wrong with that. But hold it lightly, especially when you realize that equally committed Christians from a variety of, of uh, from, throughout the course of history, all of whom have a profound Trust in the Scripture as the inspired Word of God, equally committed Christians, have come up with some different interpretations of what some of the images in this book, this, this letter, mean. So, therefore, I need to be respectful. Respectful. In fact, a little respect would go a long ways in our current environment. Instead of thinking, if, no one, if you don't believe exactly like me in every little thing, you're, I, I X you out. That happens way too much in politics, and it happens way too much in the church. Okay? So hold them lightly. Realize that equally committed Christians, for various reasons, they trust the Word of God as much as you do. They love Jesus Christ and have trusted Him as their Savior just as much as you have and they come at this book, and it communicates to them on various levels certain things that are different. So hold it lightly. So, and, 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 and with that in mind, then I kind of went into my second of these two points here. Hold them respectfully. Be respectful towards people. You might be premillennial or amillennial. You might be pre-tribulational or post-tribulational or mid-tribulational. You may, you, you may be, you know, some of you say you're pan-millennial. I would all pan out, right? Whatever it is. All these kinds of things. You may think it's talking about this and that. That's okay, but be respectful. Be respectful. And have the courtesy to try to understand someone else's position before you criticize it. That's simple maturity. But then also, hold your opinions reverently. Remember, as I said, we see through a glass darkly. We need to trust God more than just our ideas about God. You know what I'm saying? Trust God. God himself at a deeper and more profound level than just my ideas about God. Have your basic trust in Jesus Christ and seek to follow him in all of your life. And whether you get everything else detailed right and you're not, or not is not so important. But if you see it, follow Jesus, it will work out. You see, I've often been uh, challenged by the misadventures of the first century when Jesus came the first time, and there were very devout, Bible-believing, religious people who rejected Jesus because he didn't come in the way they thought the Bible taught he would. They were more committed to their theology than they were to theos. And that's a mistake we don't want to make. So, all right, enough of that. Uh, so it was not that they successfully decoded all the symbols and had it all figured out. That wasn't what really, um, uh, really uh, gave, gave them the, the thrust to be a life-giving community which spread like wildfire and changed the whole landscape of the world in those generations. What, it wasn't that. Well, then what was it? What was it? Well, I believe as this opening text of it begins to help us to see, they had a hope-filled vision of God, of Jesus, of the church, and of the future, which gave to them strength to persevere, even in the midst of unimaginable suffering. And the opening verses of this text give us a clue to all this. They had, first of all, a hope-filled vision of God, 
hope-filled vision. No, John writes to these people, and he says, I'm writing you, I'm John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his uh, over uh, over all of Israel. He, grace to you from who is and who was and who is to come. I'm bringing you grace from the one who is and was, and it, that's God. He's before everything ever happened. He's after everything is all done. He's the one who is all over. I'm giving, I'm speaking to you. This is in the time when supposedly that was Caesar's job. But instead, he was saying, I am speaking to you on behalf of the one who is before all things and beyond all things. I have a confidence in this God. And these people who are everywhere having pressure to bow down to Caesar were able to say, no, I will bow down to God even if Caesar takes my life. Right? And in the eighth verse, it says, I am the Alpha and Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, think of the audacity of this. You're sitting there in your little hovel, and uh, your little place here, and you're in hiding because the, the Roman police are out to get you, and you're afraid that if someone comes and finds you, you could go die for your faith. And you're, you're, you're feeling like, it doesn't feel much to me like God's in control. It feels to me like Rome is in control. But you read this letter, and it says, I write to you on behalf of the one who was and who is and who is to come, the Alpha and the Omega. Well, what is the Alpha? It's letter A, right? What is the Omega? It's letter Z. What's in between? All the letters. He's the one who is at the very beginning He is the one at the very end. When did Rome begin? Well, about 63 B.C., right? When did that, that's when this started. When did Rome end? Well, we know it ended in the 300s. It has, it's not the beginning. It's not the ending. God is the beginning. He has no beginning. He is the beginning. In Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah. And he is the one at the end of time. He, he gave to the, John gave to these people a vision which went far beyond the trials and tribulations of their present circumstances. We have such a difficult time with perspective. Some of us have had the, the challenge of, uh, of talking to a teenager who thinks that it doesn't really matter if they finish their high school education or not. They know everything they need to know. But they only see a small slice of that picture, right? Or have seen a teacher who thinks that it's not any big deal if I start to smoke. It's okay. I can just do that. I'm fine. And you realize, oh, you're gonna, you can't see what might happen to you over the course of your life. Oh, if you could only see a bigger picture. Or you see these guys and these girls and teenagers letting their passions run amok. And, you're, they're, and they don't realize, oh, someday you're going to want a husband. You're going to want a wife. You're going to want a family. They, but they can't see it. All they maybe see is right now. You know, how many kids have quit a football team, a basketball team, a baseball team, just because they got angry at the coach? They showed them, and now they have to say 30 years later, well, I didn't quite finish. I never did get that letter. Ah, you know, and they know in their hearts they had too short of a perspective. John says, there's a much larger, larger perspective going on here. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and was and is to come. They had a vision of God. Number two, they had a vision of Jesus. 
Notice what it says in verse 5. He gave I grace to you and peace from him, him who was and is and is to come, and the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus, the crucified criminal. John is saying this, I bring you greetings from Jesus the Messiah. He's the true king of this earth. You realize how audacious that is? How bold that is? A crucified criminal is the true king of all. Caesar is not the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, he is the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on the earth. He is the first and the last. He's saying to them, Jesus is the true and ultimate ruler of the earth, not Caesar. What an audacious thing to say. In verse 17, is it's beyond the, in, in the, I have it on the back of your message notes. When I saw him, he's seeing Jesus. I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. I love that image. And he said, fear not. We, we talked about that today, didn't we? Fear not. I am the first and the last. God had said he was the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. What does that tell us? Jesus and God are one and the same. One and the same. He's the first and he's the end. He's the beginning. He's the omega point. He's the true point of where all of this is going. All of this is going to come. We, uh, there was a this whole world and everything in it was ultimately made for him. And it will be ultimately his home and the renewed heavens and the new earth. It's all for him. It's his place. It belongs to him. I am the first. I was there at the beginning. In fact, John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. Parroting Genesis 1.1, speaking about Jesus. In the beginning was the word. All things were made by him. And without him was nothing made that was made. And he's at the beginning. And he is the last. At the very, very end. This world was made to fit his life. And the first and the last. Yes, Jesus is the ultimate ruler of the earth. This gave to them confidence. Because though they may be on Caesar's hit list, they're on Jesus's book of life. They had a larger objective, something which mattered more to them, and he was the point of their existence. Many of us use Jesus as a means towards our end, like if I follow Jesus, will make my life good. That's not the way it goes. <laughs> if you do that, you'll lose both, both Jesus and a good life. <laughs> but Jesus, our lives are a means towards his and he is the last. He is the point. We live for him. Sometimes it blesses us. Sometimes it leads us into a den of lions. But if Jesus is our point, we can never lose the thing that matters most. Right? He's the beginning and the end. The first and the last. They had a vision of Jesus which allowed this young 22-year-old woman to stand firm and say, I will not wear those clothes. I will wear the clothes I came in. And you can kill me if you want. But I will die for Jesus' sake. And she did. And so did hundreds of others. Because their whole point of their life was to live for Jesus. They had a vision of God, which was hope-filled. They had a vision of Jesus, which gave meaning to their life. And they had a vision of the church, which gave to them 
meaning in their lives. It's, it, what we need to see is that the church, a lot of you think, uh, you forget, you think the church is sort of just something here just to kind of help you. <laughs> you know, it's kind of here for you, and if I get something out of it, great. If not, that's fine. If it's not too busy there, you misunderstand what it is. The church is what God is doing in the world. The church is at the very center of what God is doing in the world. The church is at the center of God's plan for you. This whole book is a letter written to churches. He says, um, um, going on, verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us by our sins of the blood and made us a kingdom. Think about that. And made us, that's who? That's us, the church. Made us a, uh, where am I? Uh, my vision is not as good as it used to be. You too, huh? Um, made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. That means we are a separate kind of kingdom, and we are part of a kingdom which will outlast the United States of America and did outlast the kingdom of Rome, and has outlasted every other kingdom, and will be there at the end of times. We are made, uh, the, 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 we are part of this big kingdom of God. That's who we really are. So the little girl sitting there in the dungeon, be crying because she cannot nurse her baby, she says, oh, it's okay, because I'm part of a kingdom that will never end. She had a, a vision which would have seemed crazy at that time. And yet, who was right? The people who killed her or she who died on behalf of her Savior? And verse 11, uh, uh, verse 11, the saying, he is, and, uh, write what you see and send it to the seven churches. And the seven, verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He's got a message for the churches, not just for individual Christians. We tend to read the Bible as if it's all written to you. It wasn't written to you. It was written to us. Community, all of us. Yes, we have a vision of the church. That's something I, uh, I'd love to sit on this topic for a little bit. But do you realize what a miracle this church is right here? Do you realize that? I mean, a few of us had no idea what we're doing. What are you laughing for? It's true, right? You know, we just thought, well, let's try it. And now you guys are all in on the joke, Right? Why? God wanted a church here. This is why we should love. I mean, yes, we've got faults. Yes, it's not perfect, and it got worse when you showed up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We're just all figuring this out together. But we have a belief that God is doing something. And it's not because of anything. It's because of this. God has given his son who gave his life to build a new family. And he wants that family to be spread all over the earth, even at the backside of a bar in Cave Creek. See? What a beautiful thing that is. What a hope-filled thing that is. Don't say bad things about Jesus' wife. Right? Don't. He loves her. And we are her. He loves us. A vision of the church. But there's two more things. I have to say them quickly. And a vision of the future that gave to them hope in the midst of that. Notice what it says in verse 7. 
He made us king, verse 6, he made us kingdom, priests to God, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him, and the tribes of earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen, so be it. I mean, he's writing to people who are suffering for their faith. And he says, don't worry, someday Jesus will come back, the true king, like Aslan showing up in Narnia and claim leadership over the earth. And at that day, people will bow before him, and he will, he will come, and he will make things right, and every eye will see him. Yes, Jesus will return to make all things right new. Jesus will return to dry every tear, to right every wrong, to bring justice to what has been an unjust world. Jesus...